So reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, entitled in the NIV, Imitating Christ's Humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I invite Nick to come and uh, speak to us now. I'll pray for him as he comes up. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you uh, uh, for Nick and for, for the inspiration you give him for, for sharing your word with us. And I just pray for him now that uh, his words will be your words and that each of us can uh, learn something new about you and uh, the revelation of why you came here to save us. Amen. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, just the next two weeks, because of the way the Sundays have fallen this year, we've got two Sundays to look at an Advent theme this week and next week. And then we've got our Christmas presentation. And then on uh, Sunday the 24th, we'll do something a little bit different. And we'll have a communion uh, and reflective service with praise and worship um, just in anticipation of Christmas, but also recognising that uh, we're not sure, I'm not sure on Christmas, what will happen on Christmas Eve? Will there be nobody here because you're all preparing your stuff? Or will there be lots of people here because they think, well, I'll come out on Sunday and I won't come out on uh, um, Christmas Day? I don't know. Um, but it'll be different anyway. And we've got two weeks then, this week and, th- and next week, to kind of uh, start to prepare our minds and our hearts for Christmas. And what we're going to do is look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2, and specifically verses 5 to 11. And we're going to split that into two parts. And this week we're going to look at verses um, 5 to 8. So it's interesting, isn't it, in the Bible that you get um, the story of the cross in all four Gospels. The, The death of Jesus is recorded four times over. You get the story of Jesus' birth in two Gospels. Uh, You know that, uh, in Matthew and Luke. And clearly from different sources, so you get two independent accounts of Jesus' birth. But only in one place do we start to even get an inkling of what went through the mind of Christ. As we come up to the incarnation, that point where Jesus becomes man. And that's here um, in Philippians 2. What did Jesus have in mind? One writer says we start here to tread on very holy ground indeed. If we ask, what did Jesus have in, have in mind 
But here it is, recorded. We have the same mind, same mindset uh, as Christ Jesus, but it's not simply just to uh, appeal to our curiosity, is it? It's here for us um, to follow. So even as we come up to Christmas, we're going to look what was in the mind of Christ and how we are asked to follow that. And maybe Christmas is quite a good time to apply uh, some of the lessons that are here. Well, let's see what we learned. So starting off, Jesus was in very nature God. And it's very interesting that Paul should put it like this. He starts out the verse with, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, something to use to his own advantage. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus was in full possession of the divine nature. He was, um, by nature, God. He was identical with God. It's a mystery, isn't it? But it's that John 1 kind of mystery that in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus before he was man, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So I'm going to ask you a question. Which Old Testament passage speaks to you most powerfully about the the majesty, uh, the, the otherness of God? So I want some suggestions from you. And as Nathan once said, this is not a rhetorical question. Okay, that's kind of right. Sorry? Genesis, okay, yeah, Genesis. God speaks and, and everything comes into being just by the word of his mouth. And of course, Christ is the word of God. Any others? Yeah, Moses says Sinai. Yeah, I got that on my list. It's kind of um, uh, the, the kind of God meets Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, uh, and if it it sounds almost like a volcano, of course it isn't, because it's just the presence of God. And there's kind of like they see like um, picture of heaven opened, uh, and there is thunder, and the mountain itself shakes uh, with the very presence of God. I'm going to challenge you to give me two more, and then I'll move on. Isaiah in the temple, thank you. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah said, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim, their angels, each with six wings. And with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the sound of their voices the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Yeah, and that was just the voice of the angels. What do you think the voice of God is like on Sinai? One more. Isaiah 9. Just the Yeah, Isaiah 9, we had this morning. Somebody else said something else. Or was it the same? No, so there you go. These pictures of, of God in the Old, Tem- uh, Old Testament. If you want one that you've never tried before, possibly, um, read Ezekiel 1. Um, this afternoon, that's uh, uh, a vision that Ezekiel has of God. You'll have to read the whole chapter. Very mysterious. But Jesus is, in very nature, this God. This God that you see in the Old Testament. The God who appears in the burning bush. The, the God who comes down and speaks on Mount Sinai. The, the God in the vision of, of Isaiah. This is Jesus, and we get little glimpses of him on occasions. And we, we've already mentioned the, the burning bush. Was that 
Was that Christ? The man who, uh, the central of, of three figures who appear to Abraham before Sodom is destroyed, is that Jesus? The commander of the Lord's army we've seen in, in, in Joshua. All that is God, Jesus is. He is in very nature God. And yet, he didn't consider equality with God, his levelness, his identity as God, something to be grasped. So Philippians 2 is full of um, great words that we need to kind of carefully uh, consider. And so the older translations say that Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. And, and the English word grasped, is, you could take that a couple of ways. And actually, the underlying Greek word has the same kind of ambiguity. So you could take that a couple of ways. And the first, I think, is this, that Jesus didn't consider his divinity something to be held on to at all costs. He didn't consider his divinity something to be retained by force. His essential nature as God, his, his status as God, he is not prepared to fight over it. He will not war to retain it. He is willing to give up what is essentially him, what is is his natural status to become a child. Become a child, become a tiny child. Isn't that amazing? And of course, from a child to become a substitute and as a substitute to become a saviour. So this is the mind of Christ to take what is essentially you and to not hold on to it but to give it up and to give it over for a higher purpose. Give it over, in fact, to the service of God and the service of other people. And the second meaning is this, that Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be used for his own, uh, to be used for his own advantage. Didn't consider it something to be kind of exploited He didn't consider it a stepping stone to to, to greater things. And it's hard to imagine that going through the mind of Christ, and and maybe it never did. But just imagine when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and and what does he do? Satan says, turn stones into bread. And that's basically, use your divinity, Jesus, to fulfill your own needs and desires. Just to kind of fill your own stomach. And actually... Satan then says to him, throw himself off the temple and, and, and um, God, God will catch you. Really, which is to use his divinity in, in a frivolous manner and, and just to frivolous demonstrations almost that he is God's son. And then he says, worship me and I'll make you king over all nations. It's a temptation to just be a self-glorifying king. So even when he's come in human nature, there are these temptations to use his divinity to his own advantage, and Jesus says no. So actually, Christmas is a great time for filling our stomachs, isn't it? And it's a great time for shutting ourselves behind our own doors and, um, and patting ourselves on the back. So I wonder, can we resist exploiting all the powers that we have and the status that we have for our own well-being and our glory? It can be quite a selfish time. Christmas. Can you give up what is essentially you, what you feel is your status, 
your nature for the sake of serving others? Well, Jesus did. He emptied himself out um, for the sake of others and he humbled himself. So the first thing Jesus does, even though he's equal with God, he doesn't consider that something to be retained by force. He made himself nothing. In fact, in the older translations, or in one particular translation, it says that Jesus emptied himself. And that's an idea that Charles Wesley picked up in his hymn, And Can It Be? Do you remember the line? He emptied himself of all, all but love. And that's caused some confusion. In the late 19th century, there was a suggestion um, that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes, that he gave up his om- omniscience, his all-knowingness, that he gave up his omnipresence, uh, his, his being everywhere, and he gave up his omnipotence, his, his all-power when he became a human being. That's the sense of emptying himself of, uh, of somehow being less. Of course, it's not actually true. It's been uh, rightly rejected. Does Jesus empty himself of all but love? No, he becomes human without giving up any of his um, divine nature. I tell you what, there's lots of theological questions to be asked at that point. But I'm not going to ask them, I'm not going to answer them. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't really need to answer them to, um, to get to the point of the passage uh, this morning. But we can say a couple of amazing things. One is that when God created human beings in his image, that when the Father sends the Son, the human frame is enough to take the divine nature without Jesus having to give up anything that is divine doesn't cease to be God I don't know whether you can get a grip on that for your own use but it strikes me that a body like yours or a body like mine is an adequate vessel for God to put his divinity into and reveal himself without divesting himself of any of his divine qualities. I think that's true. don't think that's blasphemy. Jesus could have come in, in a body like mine and revealed himself to the world without divesting himself of, of anything divine. Human body, the human frame is an amazing thing. So he didn't empty himself. There's a, that's a misunderstanding of, uh, of the word. Uh, and the word actually means to deprive, to deprive something of its proper place and use. To deprive something of its proper place and use. So Jesus gave up his place in glory. In John 17, he talks about the glory he had with God before the world began. As part of that prayer in, in John 17. And he gave up that place in glory to to become a human being and be in this other place um, with us, in the muck and the mess uh, of our world. And of course, he he, he starts, I I suppose, actually lying in the muck and and the mess of of an afterbirth and of an animal's feeding trough. It's an amazing thing. That Jesus gives up his place, he gives up his, his status uh, a, a sovereign Lord of all to take on the nature of a servant. Actually, it's not just a servant, it's the nature of a slave. And what is a slave? Here's a good definition. A person who is legally owned by someone else 
and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. A person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. Jesus takes on the nature of a slave, someone who is owned by someone else and whose entire purpose is do the will of God who sent him. Being made, being made in human likeness. Now that's a little phrase, isn't it? But, but how was he made? Well, he was made like you and I are. God, who is it? Until that point has been spirit, God is spirit, has allowed himself to be made by the same process you and I were made. Conception, gestation, and birth. How, what's the word? Demeaning's not quite the right word, is it? But how low does he, does he step? How messy a process does he get involved in? Some of you might be thinking, how painful a process might ring bells, how uh, astonishing. And equally astonishing, he made himself nothing. Of no repute, of no glory, no status. And he did it voluntarily. So I wonder whether you can manage this Christmas to have the mind of Christ. Not grasping onto your status, but being prepared to be seen as low, what does that mean? Taking on the role of servant owned by God and serving him as master, putting yourself down the bottom of the list. This is what the Christ of Christmas does. He empties himself out on behalf of others. So he empties himself and he humbles himself. I realise some of you haven't found the, um, you haven't found the word searches this morning. Um, they, were, they were at the back because I couldn't put them on the windowsills. If you want them now, uh, don't be embarrassed. You can go and find them on the, um, uh, on the bookshelf as you came in. So he emptied himself in a sense, made himself nothing, but he also he humbled himself. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's amazing, isn't it? The God who's, who was, we sing in the hymn, or occasionally we sing in the hymn, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. This is, this is God before Christ, immortal, invisible, inaccessible, hidden. But God the Son has allowed himself to be found, to be found in appearance as a man. He's allowed himself to be experienced by our senses. He's allowed himself to be seen, to be touched, to be heard, to be smelt, I guess. Maybe after a day on the road. He's appeared. He's come. He's, he's visible. Isn't that an amazing thing? So I heard uh, an evangelist, uh, a guy who was working in schools, tell this story. He, he'd been talking to a class of uh, six formers in, a, in an RE lesson. And... and uh, didn't look desperately impressed. So I imagine somebody with their feet up on the desk at the back of the, the class saying, well, have you ever seen God then? And assuming that that was kind of the killer question that would kind of, like, wipe everything he said away. And he said, no. But if I'd been born at the right time and in the right place, I could have done. I could have done. Jesus' 
been found, allowed himself to be found by those who were around at the time, but still found because there are still those accounts for you to read and to evaluate in the Gospels. He still allows himself to be found to history and to people. So his contemporaries would say, isn't this the carpenter? Because he just seemed the same as everybody else. But at least they saw him as a man. But of course he's so much more than that. And what does he come to do? He comes to be obedient. Obedient to death is what it says. Well actually, it's a little bit more precise than that. Obedient up to the point of death. It's not that death somehow commands him. He's obedient to death. Death says, come die. He dies. Not at all. Far from it. It's his father who sends him to die, and and Jesus willingly obeys. Again, he does this of his own volition, of his own choice. So I think it was a a chap called Brian Brian McLaren who said that that the cross is like cosmic child abuse. Uh, Steve Chalk picked that up. I'm still not entirely clear whether Steve Chalk agreed or disagreed. But he's mistaken, because it's not cosmic child abuse. Father sends the son, and the son willingly obeys. Obeys all that the father has asked him to do. He lives a perfectly obedient life. And then he's obedient, even unto the point of laying down his life. That's the mind of Christ. To be obedient to God up to the point of laying down his life. I wonder how far your obedience will go this Christmas, your obedience to Christ. How far will my obedience to Christ go? Does it actually ever get very far from my armchair? Does it actually get as far as outside the house? Maybe, maybe not. And Jesus became a curse. That's what it means by death on a cross. We've been uh, enjoying some insights into Leviticus from Ernie. And what we see is that the Lord's way to atone for sin, the way for sin to be dealt with, to be wiped away, so that we can be right with God, is always by substitution. So do you remember what you would do? Put your hand on the head of an, uh, of an animal, sheep or a goat, sometimes a bull, your sin and your guilt is transferred to the, to the animal. It's counted to the animal, and then the animal pays the, the death penalty for you. It's, it, it dies. That's the way sin is dealt with, and God teaches that lesson again and again all the way through the Old Testament. The only way to deal with sin is by substitution. Somebody, something, has to die if you're going to be right with God. There's no other way. But there's a question here. There's, a, there's an issue. And a chap called Alec Matias says that this, this substitution is always incomplete if it's an animal because, because of this reason. At, at the core of our sin is, is actually an underlying kind of rebellion against God. We just don't want God to, to be Lord of our lives. So the, the problem that we need atoning for at heart is, a, is our rotten will, which doesn't submit to God. But how can a, a poor old dumb animal atone when he doesn't have a will? 
And actually, he's uncomprehending, he's unconsenting, he doesn't get a choice. What you need is a substitution that comes willingly and dies. And no animal does that. There's only one person, one thing that does that. There's only one willing sacrifice, one willing substitute, and that is Jesus. Comes willingly, and so he atones for our rotten wills. Interesting few verses in Psalm 40. Um, David writing says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. And then I said, and it's almost like the voice changes. David's speaking for himself and then it's actually the voice changes and I think he's uh, changing to a prophetic voice of Jesus. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within uh, my heart. So David has a little glimpse that although substitution, sacrifice is the right way until Christ comes, actually at the end of the day, it's just a foretaste. It's just pointing forwards to the one sacrifice that comes willingly, and that is Christ. So I invite you this morning, especially as we, we come to the communion table, to come to the cross for atonement. This is the only thing in the universe... It is the only thing in all of history, in in space and time, um, that deals with sin, that puts your relationship with God right. It is the death of Jesus as a substitute on your behalf. And he comes because he doesn't hold on to his status, because he doesn't want to exploit his privilege. He's prepared to make himself nothing, He obeys God as a slave obeys his master. He's prepared to be made into a man, the Christmas child, and then he is prepared to be obedient, perfectly obedient, so he can bring a spotless sacrifice to be cut down, or rather nailed up, for you and for me. So we come to the cross, we come to the table um, for atonement. But we also come to the cross to see the mind of Christ. Can't divorce these two sections. I think it's really interesting, Philippians 2, and it does strike me that we we read verses 1 to 4 about if we have any uh, encouragement from being a Christian and then to be like-minded and having the same love and being one spirit, not doing anything selfish and valuing others above ourselves and not looking only to our own interests. And then we somehow kind of stop there and we read the rest as a kind of a lovely poem about Jesus. Well, of course, it's just not like that. The lovely poem, the, the hymn to Christ, is, is clearly linked, Paul says, that you have the same mindset that, that Christ has. So what was in Christ's head as he goes from glory to the, to the stable is what is to be in your head as you go out from here today. I think that um, tiredness and and stress reveal the underlying character. We've been doing a course called Wonderfully Made. We're doing some parenting um, stuff with Bible, with Bible truths uh, mixed in, uh, drawn out of Bible truths. 
And it just strikes me that your, your kids can be lovely until they're tired. Okay, and then their essential nature comes through. Just kind of uh, selfish and, and, and gripey. But isn't that true of us? Tiredness and stress reveals what's under the surface. And, and Christmas uh, sometimes called the season of goodwill. It's a kind of a, um, it's, it's a mistaken reference uh, to what the angels say. They say goodwill uh, from God unto people on whom his favor rests. It's a season of goodwill from God, essentially. Um, not that being a, a season of goodwill is not a good thing. But actually, I wonder whether it's the season of stress. Uh, all kind of stresses come into uh, Christmas, don't they? And in this season of stress or goodwill, depending on which way you want to see it, I wonder whether you can demonstrate the mind of Christ. Not holding on to status, not standing on your laurels. So as to copy Christ, what's that going to mean? <coughs> Making yourself nothing. Does that mean clearing up after everybody else has gone to bed? Taking the role of a slave. Chaps, I don't know why I have this picture of men doing the washing up, but I do. It's kind of chaps think that's not my role, that's not my status. Well, I tell you what, the mind of Christ says it is. Do the stuff that you think uh, the lesser beings ought to do. It's dangerous thinking. Not exploiting your privileges. Does that mean maybe is it too late to invite some undesirables around your table for Christmas? He was obedient to the point of death. Can you stand up for Christ in the conversations? It's not going to cause you death. It's just a little bit of temporary discomfort maybe. And remember when you fail to have the mind of Christ and to act out the mind of Christ. And you will, because you're all sinners. Even that is covered by Jesus, who had a mind to come, make himself low, to lift us up.